Hi, everyone, and welcome back for the 27th episode of Take It or Leave It, where we discuss the hottest topics in the world of workplace leaves, absence management, and accommodations. I'm your host, Josh Seidman. With fall in full swing and Thanksgiving just around the corner, it's hard not to get excited for the upcoming holiday season. It's the most wonderful time of the year and all of that. As families across the country gear up for another round of holiday festivities, it is quite common for folks to want some talking points, things they can discuss around the fireplace or holiday dinner table with their friends and families. Well, I'm here to tell you that the always fascinating and fluctuating world of family and medical leave continues to make headlines and has provided us with many recent gems that can be relied on for holiday conversation needs. For example, in late October, the Senate Finance Committee held a full committee hearing on these exact issues. The hearing, which was titled Exploring Paid Leave, Policy, Practice, and Impact on the Workforce, covered a wide range of paid family and medical leave topics and underscored Congress's continued focus on paid leave. Speaking of Congress and paid family leave, earlier this month, the House of Representatives Bipartisan Working Group on Paid Leave issued a press release to bookend their series of six fact-finding discussions that have taken place with various paid family leave stakeholders throughout 2023. What's next for the working group, you ask? Well, they have indicated that member-level conversations will begin on a legislative framework to put forward in the coming months. Now, if that doesn't get you as excited for your first bite of sweet potato casserole with marshmallows on Thanksgiving dinner, then I'm not sure what will. Of course, state paid family and medical leave laws are always a good source of talking points as well especially when you bump into relatives that you'll only see, well, on holidays. November 2023 is a particularly interesting time for state paid family leave, as employers are sandwiched between Paid Leave Oregon, the mandatory paid family medical leave program that went into effect in Oregon in early September, and Colorado Family, the mandatory paid family medical leave program in Colorado that goes into effect at the start of 2024. Today's state paid family medical leave landscape has many layers. In addition to the programs that impose mandatory paid family or paid family medical leave benefits on employers, which exist in Oregon, Colorado, and 11 other states plus Washington, D.C., an interconnected area of paid family medical leave involves disability insurance laws and the more recent trend of family leave insurance laws. To talk us through the fascinating world of disability and family leave insurance, I am delighted and honored to be joined by Cindy Goff from the American Council of Life Insurers, or ACLI, for today's Take It or Leave It episode. Cindy is currently Vice President of Supplemental Benefits and Group Insurance at the American Council of Life Insurers, where she develops and implements state and federal public policy positions and strategies in collaboration with ACLI member companies to ensure consumers have access to the financial protection products they need. Cindy has more than 35 years of experience in state and federal legislative and regulatory advocacy for insurance issues. She worked for several years as VP of Product Policy at America's Health Insurance Plans, AHIP, in Washington, D.C., as VP of Policy for Emblem Health in New York City, and as Public Policy Director at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota. She has extensive experience in the Affordable Care Act, Medicare, Medicaid, paid family medical leave, and HIPAA-accepted benefit products such as supplemental, dental, and vision. Cindy is a graduate of the University of Minnesota, a former Peace Corps volunteer, a published comic author, and a diehard Minnesota Twins fan. Cindy, welcome to Take It or Leave It. So, so happy to be here to talk about my favorite topic, paid family and medical leave, and I cannot get my mind off of that sweet potato casserole. 
<laughs> yes, it is. Uh, it is a big hit in the Sidemen household as well. We usually have to make at least double the amount of servings that everyone anticipates to make sure all the mouths are fed. <laughs> it's a very Minnesota thing. <laughs> there we go. Oh, well, it's uh, universal as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Well, this is great. And, and again, Cindy, I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. To kick off our discussion, can you tell us just a little bit about ACLI and broadly how it's involved with family and medical leave? Sure. So ACLI represents most of the life insurance companies in the country. And one of the product lines that life insurers are heavily involved in is short-term and long-term disability income insurance, which is basically um, a type of insurance that gives people a portion of their salary when they have to take leave for their own medical condition. Our members have been serving those workers and their employers for decades, and, and so we've always been heavily involved in disability income, which really is extremely similar to the paid medical leave portion of paid family and medical leave. So that's how we got involved. And we've really been involved um, from the inception in trying to figure out how our industry can be helpful using all of our experience and all of the systems that we've created in order to expand access to these important benefits uh, across the country. Uh, it's fascinating. And really, I think setting the table for the rest of our discussion, Cindy, because that that overlap, right, I think is something that certainly from my perspective as an employment attorney who specializes in, in paid leave absence, that overlap is, is hugely important to, to keep in mind as we figure out how these laws operate uh, and sort of a going forward plan. So happy, let's, let's, let's dive in. So in terms of family leave and disability insurance, let's maybe first clear up a potential point of confusion for uh, listeners just to, again, level set. When we talk about disability insurance or family leave insurance today, what exactly are, are, are we describing? It's something that, from my perspective, is, is different than the paid family medical leave mandates that exist in those 13 states plus Washington, D.C., I, I believe. And I'm curious, what about states that have statutory disability insurance programs as well, like California, Hawaii, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. Can you can you talk a little bit about those points? Sure. Yes, absolutely. So basically, as I mentioned, short-term disability is really a form of paid medical leave. Um, and so throughout the country, there are insurance carriers that um, have been developed are delivering these types of paid medical leave coverage to employers for a very long time. And what's happened over the years, so for example, in states like California, New York, New Jersey, et cetera, they've had their statutory disability mandate programs in place since the 40s, so for a very long time. And in recent years, as paid family leave has become a benefit that's more and more often desired to be delivered by employers and you know, consumer advocates and advocates for workers needs and rights have, have really pushed for the addition of paid family leave benefits to the existing disability income coverage for people to deal with their own medical needs. And so what we started seeing was states like New Jersey and New York adding family leave benefits on top of the disability income, the statutory disability income requirements that they already had. And each state does it a little bit differently, but in general, what you end up with is basically you have you still have the state statutory DI program in place, often delivered by the same private carriers that are delivering it to employers across the country. But then with the addition of the family leave benefits, either as a kind of a separate product, if you will, or literally adding them to the list of benefits that are in their statutory DI program. 
And in recent years, what we've seen, in addition to this buildup onto statutory DI, we now have several states that didn't have statutory DI requirements in place before who have really created a paid family and medical leave program, uh, often a government program that has a component that's administered by the government, such as Washington, Massachusetts, Oregon, Colorado. We have some new states coming online soon, Maine, Minnesota, Delaware, Maryland. And uh, in those cases, usually the paid family and medical leave product, you know, as, as it's sometimes called, is really a combination of what we think of as, as disability income plus family leave benefits. Most of those states do allow employers to opt out of the public option and uh, deliver the benefits through the existing private market as long as those benefits are the same or better than what the state offers. And so we there's really only two jurisdictions that don't allow that, and that's Rhode Island and D.C. And I think that decision was made probably because the populations are so very small that they were afraid that they wouldn't get enough um, workers into their pools. But all of the other states, I think, find that it's very helpful to them to allow for the private option because it, it's it's almost like a, a kind of like a, a steam valve, you know, really it prevents the, the state programs from becoming completely overwhelmed. And they're actually helped by the private carriers who have been doing this for such a very long time that they really know how to do it well. I think another aspect of that is that many employers, especially the larger employers who really have been offering both disability income and family leave benefits in some instances for quite a long time, they, through their own self-funding or self-insuring, they actually also use the carriers, the, you know, the administrators of their program for a lot of other administrative functions, like really helping them comply with all the different leave laws that are out there. There's lots of paid leave laws. There's lots of unpaid leave laws. And the carriers really understand, you know, that bigger concept. And so they help them with a lot of those administrative functions as well. Wow. Wow. Cindy, that is incredibly helpful. It, it can get so confusing for folks. And, and as I said, mm -hmm. it certainly has for me over the years, given that many of these mandatory paid family leave and paid family medical leave programs around the country do use the term insurance, right? I mean, they're thought of as insurance style programs, but mandates, right? So they, they sort of had thread this needle between the insurance world and the employment law world. Uh, and the Colorado program I mentioned earlier, earlier the family program, right? The I uh, in family stands for insurance, right? The full name is the family medical leave insurance program that comes online in under two months from now but it is also a mandate. You know, it is an employment law mandate, but also an insurance program as well. So lots of, of overlap there. I love the analogy that you made to the private plan options being a steam valve. That is, that is spot on. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be cribbing that going forward. I love it. That, that is <laughs> so thank you for that. A very good nugget. <laughs> um, let me ask you this. So with this high level clarification and distinction in mind between paid family medical leave mandates and then family leave or disability insurance offerings, can you tell us a bit about how states that have short-term disability as a class of insurance sort of exist and operate? So how many states have this type of class of insurance? How does a state typically go about setting the parameters for their specific disability insurance offering that carriers and providers need to follow and adhere to? And are there any broad differences between different states' disability insurance offerings? 
Sure. Well, all states have considered disability insurance to be a form of a type of insurance, and they all have it um, available through their marketplaces. As with many different types of insurance, there is an organization called the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, or NAIC. It's basically all of the insurance uh, regulators in the country that develop standards and models both for legislation and for regulation. And there is a minimum standards model for disability income. It's actually part of a larger model that includes some other types of supplemental benefits. And it's, as we speak, being updated. It hasn't been updated for several, many years. And so they're updating it right now. And many states have adopted that model or some form of that model. And so disability income insurance is, there's not a huge amount of variation from state to state as far as what the minimum standards are. I think it's always been left very flexible because this is a product that's normally delivered through employers. Employers really want to make sure that they're able to sort of build and deliver the type of product that works best for their employees. And so state regulators tend to really give insurers flexibility as far as what's going to be included. That's both because in most states that don't have a mandate, these are still voluntary offerings. So you want to make sure that you can keep the product affordable so that the employer has more of an, more of an incentive to offer these benefits. And you want to make sure that it really allows the employer to sort of manage the leave in the way that works best for them. I think that it's, it's always really important to remember that leave, you know, has, has strong impacts on the employer, especially the smaller that employer is. And so in order to make sure that they can sort of manage the leave in a way that allows them to keep their doors open and keep the right number of staff in place and that sort of thing. Um, you want to make sure that they have access to products that can be built to be flexible for them and for their workers. You know, you want it to be a combination of very protective for the workers, but you also want to make sure that the employer has an incentive to want to actually offer the leave because it's not too rigid as far as what the requirements are going to be. So that's really how it's been working. There are a lot of most large employers, I would say, deliver these benefits. And, and by large, I mean like really large. They deliver these benefits through self-funding. They don't necessarily buy insurance for it. They basically have insurance carriers or others administer the benefits for them, but they actually pay for it themselves. So that's a little bit of a different scenario. But in general, what we find is that there are a lot of employers of all sizes that want to offer these benefits. As I've said, it's traditionally been disability income, but there is there does seem to be a growing curiosity, if not yet demand on the part of employers for family leave benefits as well, especially things like bonding for new children in, in the home and things like that. There's, you know, as you know, as we all know, the employer market is very competitive right now to, to get good employees and keep them. And this seems to be the addition of family leave benefits is one of the many things that employers are looking at to make their job, the job that they need to feel more appealing for their workers. So those benefits are becoming more, more popular as well. So much great detail, Cindy. Uh, really, I mean, the, 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 the different aspects of making the benefits sort of work for employees uh, so they can have access to this pay, to these benefits in, in major life event moments, but then also for employers to make sure it's flexible enough that employers are able to afford to offer it to their employees in a way that doesn't you know, hurt their bottom line in, in, in a significant negative impact. Really, really important points there. 
I love the growing curiosity among employers for family leave. I've, I've experienced that as well. You know, I, I think STD plans are, are pretty common uh, across the different industries, employers in different jurisdictions, uh, geographically, from, from my, my counseling work. Bonding leave, for sure, has grown uh, over the last five-ish years to be a, a, a pretty commonplace setup, but still you know, gaining traction for, for a number of companies. And, and now I think a lot of the curiosity that I'm seeing as well is on that other component of family leave, right? That caregiving for, for family members. That, exactly. That, yeah. yeah. So, so really, uh, really wonderful. Good, good, good point. Yeah. Um, I, I always view it as that we are getting older as a society and it's becoming, you know, I, I know my own personal experiences is like the notion of taking care of aging parents and things like that has become, I mean, it's just much more prevalent now than it ever was before. And so caregiving beyond bonding, I think is just, it, it, it naturally is going to become more and more important to people as we all get older. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that that resonates with a lot of families, a lot of households, again, across geography, across you know, political affiliations, I, th- I think that really does resonate. And and I've experienced my family and I've experienced it firsthand this year as well. Uh, so uh, mm-hmm. really, really good point. A lot of good, great detail about the disability insurance uh, offerings. Let me pivot over to family leave as a class of insurance for, for just a second. So how widespread? You mentioned uh, that the disability insurance offerings exist in all 50 states. I think I heard that. Is that, is that right? Mm-hmm. That's a, mm-hmm. yeah. That that's that's exactly. And you said since these you know these initial SDI programs, the statutory disability insurance programs, have been around. You know, some of them since the 40s, right? The 1940s. I mean, that mm-hmm. has given plenty of time for this this field to sort of ramp up and gain steam and to spread to all 50 states. Yeah. Um, yeah but exactly. Insurance still, I think, more novel, uh, more green of a topic. So, how widespread? Is family leave as a class of insurance uh, offering at the state level? And similarly to my question on the disability insurance, are there specific parameters that are set by the state or or the details kind of left more up to the carrier and their discretion? Yeah, I think that it's um, so for family leave, as I said, it's really um, with the exception of the states that have taken action, uh, you know, in a programmatic way, you know, the states we talked about, like California, New York. Colorado, Oregon, those states, family leave is still a very nascent product uh, in in the workforce. I will say that in in the large employer community, again, I think family leave benefits have are more mature. I mean, they've been they've they've been offering them longer, uh, but obviously, again, because they're self funding, they have a lot of flexibility as far as what those benefits are, who qualifies for them, and what the actual durations and levels of, of income replacement are going to be and but on the on the insurance side and and you know it's like this is a broad generalization but the smaller the employer the more likely it is that they're going to need to offer these benefits through insurance rather than self-funding you know insurance basically allows for a few things some of these smaller employers they don't really have like big bank accounts full of money that they can just start paying benefits right away when somebody goes out and so having pooled the risk, you know, in, in the DI market, they're able to, uh, or if an employee has to go out, you know, like right away at the beginning of the year, you know, the insurance starts paying right away. There's just no question about that. So they don't have to worry about having cash flow to cover somebody's wages and then cover, for example, a substitute at the same time, that kind of thing. And so it tends to be the smaller the employer, the more likely it is that they're going to want to do this through insurance. Disability income, there are a lot of small employers that offer it. 
on the family leave side, as I said, it's it's really very new. And so states over the years have, as I mentioned before, have recognized disability income as a type of insurance for, for decades. But in some states, there really is no recognition of family leave benefits as a type of insurance. And so in some states, uh, insurers can't really file a product because there's no recognition of those benefits as insurance benefits. So the National Council of Insurance Legislators, which is uh, basically a the association of state legislators that focus on insurance law, the committees in the states that oversee insurance, they also, like the NAIC, they also create model laws and regulations. And they, a couple of years ago, passed a model law that would allow states to recognize family leave benefits as a type of insurance, either adding them to a disability income policy as a rider or a, a completely separate standalone insurance product that an employer could buy, you know, just whenever they wanted without, without having to combine it with disability income insurance. And that law has passed now in six states. Mm-hmm. I think that it's, um, it's going to be considered again in several states in the coming years, in the next couple of legislative sessions. There are a few states that have said, we don't really think we need to pass that law we as the insurance regulators think that we have the authority already to approve those products. So some of our members have been filing products in different states to see if they can get them approved, essentially. And they're having some success, but we are working hard to try to make sure that that model is passed in more states because, you know, it's kind of a chicken and egg. It's like if the product's not available, there's not going to be customer demand. And if there's not customer demand, the product's not going to be available. And so we're really trying to get the products sort of like till the land so that the products can be filed and approved. We're also working, I, I will mention, on um, at the federal level on some, some revisions to the tax credit that exists now for paid family and medical leave benefits to allow employers to actually use the, that tax credit against premiums as well as wages. You can only use it against the wages that you pay out of your own pocket to the employees that go out now. Um, but as I said, smaller employers can't really take advantage of that because they need to fulfill the, these benefits through the purchase of insurance. So we think that if you have things like that in place, that can be another incentive for employers in the states that want to purchase coverage that we hope will be more and more available. That will be something that can help them and sort of help grow and expand the number of employers that are giving these benefits to their employees. Very, very fascinating, Cindy. And I, I mean, I, I'd love to maybe piggyback on one point that you spoke about quite a bit during during that last response. But I just want to make sure I've got it uh, straight in my head and, and maybe for, for some listeners. So family leave as a class of insurance is far less widespread than, than disability as a class of insurance. I think you said six instead of all 50 states, right, currently are offering it. Right. So if a state doesn't have family leave as a class of insurance, and then what do carriers do, what do providers do in, in the state if the company that isn't self-funded, right, which we'll, we'll talk about, or isn't self-insured, but they do want to offer family leave as, as a benefit to their employees? You know, what, mm-hmm. what sort of happens in, in that context? Can you can maybe explain that a little bit more for us? Yeah, I, well, as I said, it's like in some states, carriers have tried to, you know, just sort of see if they can get those riders, family leave riders mm-hmm. approved. And they've had some success in st- some, and in, but in some states, the regulators have said, you know, we don't, we need statutory authority to recognize these. Mm-hmm. So in states that don't, 
it isn't really necessary in the mandate states, you know, mm -hmm. the, all of the states that have created programs because they created the availability of family leave benefits through a different mechanism. And so what we're really concentrating on is the states where it's very unlikely that there's going to be a mandate, you know, it's just sort of for whatever political reasons. We really want to make sure that carriers are still able to develop products and offer them in those states. As I said, it's kind of nowadays, it's kind of hit or miss. There are some states that that just think they don't need more authority than they have now. But there are a lot of states that that said that we really need the law to recognize these. So that's why we're, you know, sure. that's why we encouraged NCOIL to do the model. And that's why we're working now on trying to get it passed in more states. Got it. Got it. And, and, and for that, that first group of states, the ones where carriers are taking a shot, seeing if the rider gets approved and, and <laughs> best. Is that because those states' insurance codes currently are, are broad enough that, you know, they're, they're sort of saying, ah, yes, the language here, the umbrella language that we have in place is good enough and it, it can be read as covering family leave insurance. We don't need to. Yeah, usually, uh, you know, I, usually that's the case. Um, you know, one, a, a case in point is uh, a Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. You know, we um, they have they we've approached them about passing the, the legislation and they said, well, we think that our that the the way that our insurance language laws are set up, um, we can probably um, approve those without having to actually change the law. So yeah, it's I mean it's like if you if you read insurance laws from state to state, sometimes the laws are very very different, and so it's it's really you really need to work collaboratively with the state regulators, you know, to see how much you have to do in order to give them the authority to actually oversee these kinds of benefits. Mm -hmm. Now that that that's so helpful. Thank you, Cindy. Let me ask quickly about another wrinkle in the space, and it's come up a few times uh, during during our chat so far. So, don't need to to jump in too much into the detail, but just to reiterate for folks. So there are right in addition to the family leave and disability insurance offerings, there are employers. I think you said typically larger employers that will will self insure for purposes of, of disability insurance and and perhaps mm -hmm. disability and family leave. Can you just talk a little bit more uh, about sort of how self-insured employers kind of change the playing field here? Well, the first thing I'll say is, is that they really kind of have been the vanguards of uh, especially, you know, the addition of paid family leave. They recognized very early on that, especially when the Family and Medical Leave Act, the Federal Family and Medical Leave Act was passed, which is a federal law that protects people's jobs if they take family or medical leave. It does not protect their incomes, that there's no paid component of it. But it's a, it's basically a, a law that's applicable in all 50 states that sets out the criteria for when people take leave for certain reasons for certain amounts of time, their job or something very similar to it has to be available for them when they come back. And that is applicable on all employers, except for those really small employers that are under, say, like 50 employees. And it it sort of became part of the fabric of the expansion of the offering of benefits, especially for the larger employers, because they already recognized that these benefits were really important for, for a whole host of reasons, not just because they wanted to sort of like make sure that they were in compliance with all of the paid leave requirement or all of the leave requirements and laws, but also because they really recognize the value to employees as far as retention and, you know, productivity and all that kind of thing. So, Self-insured employers, I would say, really um, have sort of paved the way for this expanding interest in 
paid family and medical leave. It's become a kind of a, because of that, it's become a competitive issue for all employers because that's one of the things they have to compete with in, you know, trying to get employees who want to come and stay is um, that there are a lot of these self-funded um, employers that, that actually are offering these benefits. They really structure them the way they want. They're not regulated as insurance, obviously, and so they do structure them the way they want. But we find that they're often very generous in you know what they what they cover, who they cover, that kind of thing. There's a couple of other aspects too that that people don't talk about very much, but they are becoming more and more important in the policy discussion around this. Which is there are different kinds of entities that really fund paid leave very differently. So, for example, you might have a teachers group, you know, you might have a, a, a school district that doesn't buy paid family and medical leave insurance and doesn't necessarily set up a paid family and medical leave self-funded program, but rather they just, as part of their negotiation, they give like a, a very big block of sick time. And so that, you know, the benefit and the reason why I think that that may be popular with some of the, nego- the folks that negotiate for benefits is because sick time is paid at 100%. Mm-hmm. of your salary, you know, whereas most paid leave is paid, you know, 60, 70%. So there are other types of paid leave out there that really don't get recognized and talked about in the grand scheme of things, just because they're they're not really structured either as self-insurance or regular insurance. And so we always have to keep those things in mind, especially when a state, a new state has come online that is, that is offering, you know, a government run uh, paid leave is that you want to make sure that it, it, that you're not taking benefits away from people inadvertently because you're because you're not recognizing how their paid leave was was structured. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, a wonderful, wonderful last, uh, all wonderful good points. But that last point uh, really struck me. You know, I, I've seen firsthand a handful of companies that I've worked with over the years that have had these very generous. Uh, paid sick days programs, but that, you know, were really, when you, when you looked at them a little bit more closely, were really set up more like a short-term disability, right? And, and, and having certainly a lot of overlap between the two concepts. So I think that's a really important point. And, and one, um, certainly not, not our, our topic for today, but, but paid sick leave uh, laws, you know, are just as prevalent and, and proliferating uh, at a pace that uh, certainly rivals and, and frankly, in, in a number of ways, exceeds the pace of the paid family leave uh, expansion that we're, we're discussing today. So a uh, lot, yes. lot, lots to discuss in, in that space as well. It's a follow up to the, the self-funded plan uh, point. I'm curious if an employer has a self-funded plan across the country, but, but has operations in states with a mandatory paid family medical leave program, like the ones in Oregon, Colorado that we discussed earlier, or Washington or Massachusetts, Connecticut, and so forth. What sort of happens in that context to their self-insured plan? Does the self-insured plan on disability or family leave need, need to be tweaked and changed and, and amended because of those state state requirements? Yes, normally. And I think that's become... Uh, one of the uh, the really big pain points for um, these large employers is, especially those that have um, employees in multiple states, mm-hmm. is that because these are normally funded through a payroll tax of some kind, the employer is subject to that payroll tax, and therefore, they, you know, they most states, as I said, give them the option to opt out into the private sector. But the mandate is still is still applicable, and in order to opt out for the private sector. 
the coverage has to be the same or better than what the state coverage is. And so that's become very difficult for a lot of employers, especially, as I said, multi-state employers, because sometimes the differences are between, you know, eligibility and benefits are, are really big between the states. And in addition to that, there's a lot of administrative requirements, you know, data reporting and all these different types of requirements that the employer has to has to abide by that just become the, the more they, they always talk about it as a patchwork. You know, the more states come online with their own very different programs, the harder it is for these employers to sort of keep track of who, what they're supposed to be doing in what state and that sort of thing. They do rely on their administrators to do that. And, and that's happening. But I also think that um, it's one of the reasons why if you talk to the representatives in Washington of the large employers, one of the things that they really talk about a lot is the need for some kind of better standardization across all the states. Um, that's going to be very hard to do politically because each state is very proud of their program and they really they will say if we're going to standardize, it has to be standardized to my level, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And so it's it's a hard it's a hard discussion to have, but it is it's really important because it, it's driving a lot of the you know these employers that really have always seen the value of these benefits. It's sort of driving a lot of the the angst about how to make sure that they can keep delivering them you know in a way that that actually works for their business. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. I agree with all those uh, points there, Cindy. A topic that is related to our discussion so far, but one we haven't quite touched on yet is that there are a few states, two I believe, that have recently enacted voluntary paid family medical leave programs. Mm -hmm. Is there any difference between family leave or, or disability being a class of insurance and then states, on the other hand, offering voluntary paid family or paid family medical leave programs? You know, is there a difference between those two? Well, I think the big difference is that frankly, in both states, Vermont and New Hampshire, they created a government pool and they're basically inviting employers to either join that pool or to continue doing what they've been doing already in offering DI in disability income. And um, both states do it a little bit differently. Um, you know, New Hampshire is really focused mostly on paid family leave, although they, they will allow individuals that don't have disability income coverage to join if they have their own medical their own medical issue, but only if, if it's not work-related, you know, they, they don't want to sort of interfere with, with any work comp or any, any of that kind of thing. And so they basically invited employers to join the existing state employee pool, which had, had already been in existence, and they give a tax incentive if the employer does that versus staying in the private sector. And obviously, our response to that would be, we think a tax incentive should be available to everybody. <laughs> Um, and then in the in, in in Vermont, they created a state pool. Their, their state employees didn't have paid family and medical leave before, so they created a state pool, and they're going to be phasing in allowing employers, um, private employers, and individuals over the course of the next couple of years, and um, inviting them to join if they want to. But it's it's not an a, you know the reason that people say voluntary is because it's not an employer mandate. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to make it available to, they're trying to make a, a new pool available to employers in mm -hmm. both of those states. I see. No, that, that, that's, that's wonderful, Cindy. Very helpful. Thank you. And in, I, I should mention that yep. in both states, they have hired private carriers to administer them. Mm -hmm. They didn't build them from scratch. They basically leveraged carriers that already knew how to do it. So that made it happen a lot faster than it would have normally. Mm -hmm. Yep. Good, good point. 
thank you for going through all of that, the family and disability uh, insurance world with so intriguing and such an important area in the family and medical leave space that again, for employment lawyers, HR teams, benefits professionals might fly under the radar, uh, especially when you're focused so much on just the, the mandates that, that are out there, these mandatory programs. So really, really beneficial discussions. Thank you. I do have, just not, not going to let you go just yet, just have two more quick questions for you <laughs> to pivot very quickly to the federal level, where you and I have spent some time uh, discussing this topic uh, in the past, and it came up uh, a little bit today, but maybe just to focus on it for our last few minutes here. How might the existing state disability and family leave insurance landscape inform the discussion about a potential future federal paid family medical leave program, whether it's a mandate or a voluntary program, how might one sort of inform the other? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there are so many different examples now of, of how it can be done. Um, you know, we, you know, in our, uh, obviously our prejudices, you know, start with what's already working, you know, build off of the existing systems and uh, markets that have been created instead of, you know, starting from scratch. I think that, you know, in a bipartisan discussion, that's a more popular starting place. You know, we had the last time that there was a, a serious federal discussion about paid family and medical leave. It was around a government program that really would have built a, a government mandate from scratch. And we, it's always going to be the case with us, we, we really worked hard to make sure people understood all the things that our industry does and what will be lost if you don't sort of leverage what already exists. There's so much beyond just claims payment that we do to help workers and their employers, you know, sort of navigate the experience of being on leave. And I think people have really listened and, and come to understand that much better. And so in the current discussions that are happening, what we've been talking about is sort of like baby steps. You know, it's sort of like we don't want the discussion to end because of all, everything that's happening in D.C. right now and how hard it is to get things done. And so we've been talking a lot about, you know, things that they can do now that will ex at least expand it a bit. The Fisher tax credit, making that more available to smaller employers, uh, some kind of sort of government sponsored administrative simplification around the around the various programs throughout the country. That would do a couple of things. One is I think it would we hope that it would ease the burden a bit for those large uh, multi-state employers. But also uh, it would it would give us sort of a better foundational database to understand how paid leave works and what doesn't work, you know, that kind of thing. So those are some of the things that we've been promoting at the federal level. You know, we're prepared for whatever discussion, you know, whatever the whatever the political outcomes come of the next few years, you know, and the elections and that sort of thing. We're prepared to have discussions at whatever tables get set up. And we have ideas. We have ideas, everything from, as I said, you know, tax credits and financial supports for employers to things like let's get creative about the pain points for these employers, you know, when they don't have somebody in the back of the shop that they can pull to the front when someone goes on leave. You know, are there jobs programs interfaces that they can leverage? Are, are there new kinds of business insurance that will allow them to fund a, a very skilled professional that they need to come in? that where a jobs program just wouldn't do it, you know, that you need somebody that has a high level of training, that kind of thing. There's a lot to talk about, I think, in the short term, in a bipartisan discussion, always understanding that eventually the discussions are going to broaden out again to the bigger concept of some kind of, a, some kind of 
more sweeping federal policy. And we're just ready to have whatever discussions people start having. We're just always trying to invite ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) That is that is great, Cindy. Really, really fascinating. I'm going to thank you for spending some time with me today. This discussion was one I've been really itching to have for a while. And (laughs) it's so valuable as I expected it was going to be. Um, I learned so much and I, I know our listeners did as well. So thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge on family medically broadly and the nuances of the disability and family leave insurance world with us today. It's absolutely my pleasure. As, as I know you know, there's so much more we can talk about. So invite me back someday. <laughs> oh, for sure. No, I, I will hold you to that. And, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in for today's episode. We'll see you next time.